electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk in the Street. I'm David Faber, along with Sarah Eisen and Mike Santoli. We're live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to start trading for the final day of this week. You can see set up for, yet again, uh, a move higher. Uh, And our uh, roadmap does start with, uh, well, overall technology stocks, for example, bouncing back. This after the Nasdaq did suffer what was its worst day since March. Plus, speaking of big tech, top AI companies like Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon set to meet with the Biden administration later today after signing a White House pledge over AI risks. And Amex shares falling in the pre-market despite posting another quarter of record revenue. We're going to go through the numbers, figure out what it means about the consumer. But let's start with the markets, of course, after what was a sell-off yesterday, at least in technology, Uh, although, again, you did have other indexes uh, a bit higher. Nice to be able to turn to Mike Santoli at this time of the morning and just sort of give us a sense as to what you're watching, what you're thinking about as this weekend's. You know, and I wonder, given we're only a little bit through earnings season, but we're getting there, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, Are multiples higher because earnings really have not been? Yeah, multiples definitely have run higher. I mean, the the whole real market recovery this year has mostly been about rebuilding the valuations because earnings, even though they've stabilized in terms of forecast and in terms of results, they haven't started to uh, grow again. But I think that, you know, yesterday was interesting as an excuse for people to skim a bit off the biggest Nasdaq stocks with the Nas- uh, the Netflix and Tesla, uh, you know, kind of mixed results. And so therefore, I do think that along with the fact that pretty much everybody has been on this theme of saying, you know, what more can the very largest Nasdaq stocks do for us in the short term? Therefore, market needs to broaden out. The market has been broadening out. We have seen better performance by the average stock and some laggard groups like pharma, like uh, the financials. Uh, also, there is this looming rebalancing of the Nasdaq 100 index. It's happening at the end of day, uh, the day today. I think most of the mechanical impact of that, almost all of it really registered on day one uh, a week ago Monday. Uh, and then the Nasdaq 100 relative to the equal weight uh, you see there, it's been about two percentage points outperformance by the equal weight since that day. So that to me showed you that we know that the weights of the very largest stocks have to come down. By the way, the QQQ ETF, which follows this, is maybe a couple of others that index to the Nasdaq 100. It's like $300 billion. The stocks that are having their market caps reduced are $10 trillion collectively in market cap. So, you know, dollar for dollar doesn't matter. But if it creates an excuse for people to say these stocks are outgrowing the market, I mean, essentially, then it could continue in that fashion. I, you summed it up. The J.P. Morgan trading note this morning said, you know, as it relates to yesterday's 2 percent sell off, was it the Nasdaq rebalance? Was it the 44 percent run up year to date in the triple Qs? Was it disappointing earnings? Was it rising yields? Yes, all of the above, right? So we had a bad day. And the question is, 
do you read into it that a broader correction is coming after what has been a really big win streak led by tech? I mean, there's obviously a pullback waiting for us somewhere. I think we have been building toward a level of calm and complacency and technical, you know, extended. Well, there's been a lot more enthusiasm in, Absolutely. in, in, this, in this earnings season. And I, I do wonder at what point we're going to start to question whether it's been justified. That's right. Uh, based on the question I asked you at the beginning, which is, you know, multiples clearly seem to be moving somewhat higher. And, of course, as we talked so many times, you know, whether it's NVIDIA, Microsoft sure. or Meta. But once you get beyond a handful of names, is it going to actually show up in the numbers, this enthusiasm around, for example, generative AI, which is going to play out over a long period of time? The, the, counter, the counter to that is if you're complaining about the concentration of the market and you're complaining about valuation, you're complaining about the same thing because the concentration of the very largest stocks, which are very expensive, is, is kind of driving up the multiple. The other piece of it is, and this is something that, for example, uh, Savita Subramanian over at B of A has been pointing out for a couple of months, is the market's acting the way it does when earnings trough, which means broadens you out. rally, yeah. it broadens out, and you get a valuation rebuild. People keep saying, oh, the whole rally this year is multiple expansion. Exactly. The first move in a bull market is always valuation expansion. And she expects it to continue. This note just out from today. Yes, exactly. So she does expect it to continue. I think that's the bull case. Now, that means that if we keep broadening and sharing the wealth, then it'll support the index, but it probably doesn't keep it going up at this kind of a pace. And to your point about sentiment getting better, you know, we have to keep that on the, you know, on the screens in terms of whether people are getting overexcited. I did see a good matrix out of Credit Suisse today of like, what still seems supportive, what still seems like it might be a headwind, and things like speculation in options, individual stock options, and things like that are getting overheated. Individual investor mood is brightening, and by the surveys, although I would argue flows into uh, equity funds have not yet gotten to that uh, red alert type of level of excitement. I think there's a, the retail frenzy, which is back a little bit, which yeah. we should talk about. The, the meme stocks doing well, the, the serious move that we saw yesterday. But but just in general, on our earnings for well, a that second. Was one, it may have been more a short squeeze and technically related to this rebalancing, the serious move. That was crazy. That was 42% crazy. move in serious. It just reminded you a little bit of right meme, meme days. It did. Um, as it relates to earnings, one theme, though, and potential headwind that people have been looking out for is, is this idea that, yes, we're in a disinflationary environment now, so that could potentially hurt uh, margins and performance of some companies. We've seen that a little bit overseas with Volvo and Electrolux. I think there are questions about Ford, for instance, reducing pricing on the F-150. Um, a little bit Netflix, too, maybe a little hint of that in, in that, and, and whether that's a big enough theme, Mike, to, to suggest that maybe earnings have not dropped. Yeah, or at least maybe the estimates for latter half of this year and next year are still too high. Uh, I mean, which often is the case a year ahead. I mean, almost always is the case, as a matter of fact. Um, I do think it's, it's, it's definitely relevant in, in some pockets. And I think it's also keeping a lot of companies from getting aggressive on guidance. Uh, they're no longer trying to build in and assume better pricing. I, I do have to step back one second and laugh because the pattern of this year has been whatever good thing the market seizes upon immediately becomes a bear story. So inflation's coming down. Right. Markets like that. But be careful what it does to earnings. We got a debt ceiling deal. We didn't, go, we didn't default on the debt. But be careful. Treasury's going to have to sell a lot of debt to rebuild the cash balance. So I do think that that's almost a healthy instinct that people have of just not assuming things are going to be great. And we keep riding that pattern uh, for now. That being said, yeah, we're getting aggressive in terms of valuation. Yeah. Now, I don't think valuation's 
one number one, two, or three are the reasons you should like this market. Right. When it comes to deflation, Sarah, longer term, I mean, I, I'm sure you hear it, I do as well, the, the impact of generative AI and what that's going to mean, not not near term, not this quarter or next, but over the five, next... Five, ten years. Yeah, over the next three to five years even, because it is moving fairly quickly. It comes up all the time. You know, uh, I think even CEO conversations, what jobs might I be able to replace at some point uh, with this technology? And that's sort of, I mean, everybody's trying to understand the power of it and how it can be used. There is, I don't know how you quantify that over a long period of time. Nobody's able to do that yeah. yet, but obviously if, if you're able to save money and productivity and all of that, that, that ultimately is deflationary, also deals with a, a tight labor market that we've been having. But, but the problem now is the opposite. It's that we just have risen and that yes. it's hard to get workers. And so you're not really factoring in the AI story in, in terms of the deflation or even the disinflation story because it's just not, it's not there yet. Although comments like Arvind Krishna a few months ago at IBM saying that they're able to replace a lot of the back office functionality. What did he say, 30% yeah. of it with AI? It's pretty striking. Yeah. And if he said that out loud, you know other companies and they're advising and consulting with other companies to be doing that as well. So clearly a profound effect that nobody fully understands. Yeah, without on, a doubt. On, on I mean, economy, it comes up, you know, in my world, that, for example, how many junior bankers are we going to be able to yeah. replace one day? Those who just what basically do nothing to models? but produce desks, uh, decks and models yeah. at this point. That said, of course, I'm not sure how you make senior bankers if you'd have no junior bankers to start <laughs> with. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I think absolutely impossible to quantify, but is an overlay on everybody's thinking. To me, where I come down on it is it shows you that the disinflationary effect of technology that we've enjoyed for decades has not been repealed, perhaps, uh, which is different than what people were saying two years ago, where you had you know, global supply chains maxed out, structural labor shortages, this idea that we could have the risk of 70s style kind of chronic uh, inflation and big outbursts of it. And we still could, of course, who knows? But I think it does push against that idea to some degree. But right now the inflection point is more about all the spending for compute exactly. power to actually, to actually create these generative models that may one day bring this but the more immediate question is, and for, for industry groups like semiconductors, the debate is, is, is it enough to push against the downturn that we're expecting in the end, in the end market and the cycle that, that you would normally see in semiconductors right now? I think TSMC poured a little bit of cold water on that yesterday, which is why we saw the stock down. But for a stock like NVIDIA or an AMD, yeah. yep. sure, when you're really exposed, you're not getting the kind of weakness that you might normally see in this period of the economic cycle. No. As far as the overall market, though, guys, I mean, it's a little bit treading water into next week, which is such a heavy catalyst week. Now that we're on Friday, we get 168 S&P 500 companies reporting next week. We've got the Fed meeting, which we all expect to hike, but we don't know the signal that Powell is going to send about September and the future. We get an ECB meeting, which we're expecting a hike, and we get a Bank of Japan meeting. Wow, there's so much going on. One would expect Sarah Eisen's going to have quite a week. Except There's a that, lot going on. Except that I don't know that that's going to be the Monday case. I'm here Monday and Tuesday. Oh, you're here Monday yeah. and Tuesday? Don't okay. worry. I'll set right. it up for you so that please. you can take wow. the ball. Please, yeah. Off a yeah. yeah. I know. As Man, I, all those. But you just met with all of them. How can you not be here from when they all speak? I'll, the be, I'll be there. I'll be there in spirit. If you need me to call, if you need <laughs> you to call, call me, I'll call you. All right. But the bottom line is, they, they, you know, when, when I spoke to them a few weeks ago, the message hasn't changed that much, even though we've gotten some data that has pushed back against the hawkishness on the inflation front because we're still expecting hikes. And Bank of Japan, there was some excitement that they may be 
would not excitement, but anticipation that they would change the yield curve control, sort of go a little bit toward the tightening mode. And reports overnight threw cold water on that idea. And now yeah. the dollar yen is taken off again and they're keeping their, their dovish stance, even though we got a Japanese inflation report overnight, 15 months in a row, it's above their target. They are really starting to see inflation. It's a good thing for their economy. It is very different from China, of course, which we've spent a lot of time on, where they're starting to see signs of the opposite. And more moves in China overnight. I don't know if you guys have been following this to try to, to stimulate their... They're, 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 incentive, they're, they're loosening rules to incentivize auto buying and electronic buying. That was the headline overnight. But what we've gotten so far is, is piecemeal. And yeah. in, investors are anticipating and not impressed, frankly, something bigger. There's a Politburo meeting, I guess, in end of July. Perhaps Will they come up there, with there's something? anticipation building that they might do a bigger, broader stimulus, stimulus package. For the consumer. Speaking of the consumer, let's get quickly to uh, American Express shares. They are moving lower in the pre-market, though. I've noticed some creep up uh, a bit. This despite reporting record quarterly results. Credit card spending, all-time high. Earnings uh, were ahead of uh, consensus of analysts, although revenues were a bit below. The company says it continued to build reserves for potential credit card defaults, uh, although on the Q&A and the call, in terms of seeing signs of stabilization, gives us confidence as looking at what's actually happened in our business over the course of the year in the first quarter. Um, you know, they generally seem to be fairly positive in their commentary from the CFO, strong growth in travel and entertainment, spending across geographies, Sarah. But yep. again, the stock is looking down a little over two and a half percent. Record quarter for restaurant reservations. They own Resi. So the, the services momentum keeps up in travel and restaurant spending. They called out millennial and Gen Z customers as the fastest growing portion of the card member base with billings up 21 percent in the quarter. So all very positive commentary, Mike, but the yeah. bottom line beat was driven by tax, wasn't it? Exactly. I think that's part of the issue <laughs> yeah. is, uh, you know, Piper saying if you adjust for uh, a lower tax rate in the past quarter, it really wasn't as much of a beat, if any, on operating. Uh, the other piece of it is slowing uh, volumes across their network. Uh, you know, of course, Amex operates a network uh, for its cardholders as well. And just a general uh, you know, softness on the revenue line which people are going to price a little bit, even though the macro inputs, as you say, all look pretty good, uh, has outperformed all the other, you know, credit card and consumer lending companies. So it's got a little bit of a, uh, of a cushion there that it's It's, uh, it's, it's almost the commentary here matters more. And so far, everything I'm reading yeah. is bullish. Yes. And they're talking about delinquencies holding flat during the quarter, which is important. People are on the lookout for that. Yeah. Although guidance was basically still more or less steady as she goes. They reiterated. Yeah. Reiterated. Yeah. yeah. All right, we got a lot more coming for you on this uh, Friday in late July. President Biden is set to meet with major AI companies. We're talking about Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, for example. They're going to be talking about managing the risks surrounding generative AI. Let's give you another look at futures. We get ready to trade here 15 minutes from now and still looking for a higher open for the broader markets. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. President Biden is set to hold a meeting at the White House with top AI companies, or at least companies that are building AI. That includes Microsoft, Google, Amazon, for example. His administration says it has secured commitments from those companies to manage the risks that are posed by this technology. Eamon Javers joins us. He has the latest for us. Eamon. Yeah, good morning, David. This is early days, but the White House says President Biden will be convening executives from seven major technology companies at the White House today to announce that the administration has secured voluntary commitments from these companies to help move toward what they're calling safe, secure, and transparent development of AI technology. The White House says these commitments from the companies include internal and external security testing of AI systems before release, sharing information across industry and with governments, civil society, and academic academia, investing in safeguards to protect proprietary and unreleased model weights, facilitating third-party discovery and reporting of vulnerabilities in their AI systems. And this is the one that I think a lot of people will really notice in the real world, developing robust technical mechanisms to ensure that users know what content is being generated by AI, such as a watermarking uh, system. That's out there in some companies. A lot of companies will now start to do that. The tension here, of course, is that the White House wants to ensure the safety of AI technology. They've also got to make sure that all these innovations are made inside the United States. So that's going to require some delicate balancing of priorities between the government and the corporate sector. The companies represented at today's meeting are Amazon, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Anthropic, uh, Inflection, and OpenAI. We also expect to see President Biden making remarks on AI to outline this agreement later today. It's expected uh, in the Roosevelt Room at 1.30. Things tend to slide in the White House schedule-wise, so we'll see where they land. Uh, but we do expect, expect to see the president on AI later on today. Guys, back over to you. Um, you know, Eamon, certainly a lot of concern about the power of these tools and the effect they're going to have on the upcoming election, for example. Yeah. Is that, you think, a, a subject of some conversation in the room as well, or is it a broader? I, I think it will be a subject of conversation, and that watermarking idea is one of the ideas that they're kicking around to try to get at that. So how can users tell that things have been generated by AI versus what's real? You know, if there's a watermark on it, you can instantly uh, click on it and see whether the image you're looking at is real or not. So that might help in that regard. But this is difficult stuff, right, for the White House to deal with because, of course, the president is running for re-election, and they're going to be sensitive to any criticism, and his opponents will be watching for anything that the White House does that could be seen as in any way putting their thumb on the scale politically uh, to benefit uh, Biden and the Democrats. So this is going to be a tough one for them to thread, and it's going to be highly, highly scrutinized. You can bet that Republicans are going to be on the lookout for anything that they see coming out of this White House that feels to them like uh, this is the White House trying to suppress any kind of conservative speech, any kind of Republican endorsements, anything like that. So it's uh, just a very sensitive area, as you can imagine. But I think that the fact that it's a pledge shows you that the real action has to come from Congress, right, Eamon? And, yeah. and what is the likelihood of anything happening there? Are there, are there bills? Mean, are there leaders on this issue? Yeah, look, there's a lot of conversation. Uh, there are a lot of ideas. Uh, a lot of people want to do a lot of things. The question is whether this Congress, as divided as it is, is going to be able to produce anything useful before an election year. You know, I... 
I would be skeptical of that. I've been kicking around this town a long time. You know, major, you know, signature pieces of legislation like that uh, don't feel like they're coming out of this Congress. But we'll see. I mean, you're right. This is voluntary, right? So there's no force of law behind this. This is a very early effort at regulation here. But there's no agency backup. There's no legal backup here. This is just the companies promising the White House that this is what they're going to do. Well, Eamon, we'll be uh, watching and listening for your further reporting on sort of the outcome of, uh, of the meeting today. Thank you, Eamon Jefferson uh, in D.C. Worth noting as well, a journal story today about Sergey Brin, of course, one of the founders of, uh, of Google, who's uh, said to be back in the office three to four days a week working on uh, Gemini, uh, which is their long-awaited AI model. You know, we've talked a lot about how Alphabet perhaps uh, had the lead for so long with DeepMind and then seemingly lost it very quickly to Microsoft and OpenAI when it comes to this generative uh, phase of AI. Although it does seem as if the market is less urgently concerned that there's going to be a quick erosion of the search franchise just based on how the stock has acted. I don't think it's gotten the benefit like Microsoft has of these initiatives, but you're right. Uh, it still remains to be seen if they can. Well, uh, remember, remember in status. May when Jim Breyer told us they're at war, you know, and, and Satya's a warrior, and, and they all need to be acting like that. When, he, when I saw that Bryn headline, it reminded me of that. Yeah, on, on war footing. Certainly when it comes to consumer data, Google has an awful lot of it between Gmail, Maps, Search, YouTube, and go on from there. Coming up, we're going to talk about the FTC withdrawing uh, its in-house trial. That's its ALJ process. That was aimed at trying to stop the Microsoft Activision deal. We'll give you the details of that. One more look at futures. We have an opening bell about seven minutes from now. Don't go anywhere. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're watching very carefully what's happening with the volume. Um, and we have a mixed kind of market out there. But generally speaking, our volume's been holding up on the merchandise side. We've been growing merchandise business. So we're watching the volumes very carefully. That was a CSX's CEO on the earnings call for the company. That took place last night. Quarterly revenue did come in below the expectations, again, of the analysts who follow the company. He's going to join us, by the way, in the next hour. Revenue was $3.7 billion. Uh, that was down 3% year over year. Lower uh, fuel prices, reduced supplemental revenue, a decline in export coal benchmark prices, and a decrease in intermodal volumes. Uh, Mike, uh, offsetting effects of volume growth or Sarah. Yeah. Um, you know, it sort of goes against what the market's been trying to, to warm up to, which is this idea of, uh, we're sort of a little more in the clear on the goods economy, and uh, and obviously the transport's made a new high as a group. Uh, so we're giving back a little bit. It's been a relatively sturdy stock in the last year or so, so it's not as if uh, it was necessarily a big change to the uh, to the overall story. But uh, I think it blunts a little bit of the enthusiasm around the group. Yes, it gets noisy at this time of, uh, of the morning, so... One right now. There we go. 
to have more green on that board than what we saw from futures here at the big board. VCAT, that's an enterprise digital commerce platform celebrating its second listing anniversary with the NASDAQ Toymaker Mattel. Celebrating theatrical release of Barbie, the CEO of Mattel, by the way. We'll join Sarah and Mike. That's at 11 a.m. And you saw the movie recently. I saw it this Did week. Did you enjoy it? It was a blast. It's, it's a, I laughed out loud many times. It is a funny movie. And if you're like me, and Barbie has played a very special role in your life for a very large portion of your life, possibly until it was inappropriate to still play with Barbie, <laughs> then you have to go see it. When you go home to your childhood home, are there still Barbies There's in your still room? There's Barbies, and their Barbie dream house is there. And there are. So they I have, have not been cleared out. I have no out. interest in it. Right. And we're saving it for hopefully I, one of the one of the Eisens have a have, have a, a girl. Have a girl. <laughs> it's not going to be me. <laughs> okay. Or some or someone that's interested in Barbie. Got it. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, but no. But no. So, so far, no takers. <laughs> Look, I think what's interesting is that that even though there's a strike, which a lot of the analysts thought was going to be very negative for the box office between Barbie and you saw. I saw Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer this week. Yep. Yeah. There, there's a thing going on where, where people are going to see both this weekend. Right. The millennials, that's the trend. Yeah. It'll be an interesting little jolt to the box office, but I think there's a little bit of a sad undertone to it, which is the novelty effect of having two large studio movies on the same weekend, which used to be just a weekend in the summer. Uh, but it is amazing how the phenomenon... I've been trying to figure out which direction it's going to run in terms of who gets benefit. I think Oppenheimer's going to benefit initially more from people who otherwise wouldn't have seen it but want to do both. Like the Barbie audience is saying, oh, let's do so? it as a stunt. Uh, but we'll yeah. see. But no, Barbie's to, hardcore loyal. To Sarah's point, the larger question, of course, continues to be the strike. Uh, not just the writers who've been on strike for some time, but uh, joined by the actors. It's been a week now uh, since that strike uh, began. And what the impact is going to be over time. Short term, not that much. Longer term, very significant. And perhaps on, on box office with this bit of a reemergence of movies it could be nipped in the bud if you don't yeah. have anything by let's call it next spring or next summer that that's available sure. for viewing not to mention of course the streaming services which will also rely on an enormous amount of content that may not be made although netflix not getting hit as hard as i was going to say others. it seems like a short-term positive for investors who have been looking for some discipline when yes. it comes to these production budgets yes. we talked to ben silverman yesterday and he was saying look it's it's a good excuse for a lot of these content companies to pull back it on does. spending in the near term oh. and then longer term yes they'll be hit by oh. lack of a pipeline lack of a pipeline now, a lot of the conversation of course does come back to ai interestingly yeah. enough sure. from what we've been talking about this morning and obviously for these last few months generative ai how that may threaten uh certain uh parts of the ecosystem in hollywood uh, and what they want to do with it. Not to mention, of course, the change in the model that has resulted in f far fewer residual payments because things don't go into reruns anymore. Right. It's, it's not Friends and Seinfeld world anymore. No, the, when you make a hit show, you can live off it for a very long right, time. Right, no, the, the stream of ongoing revenue isn't, isn't quite there. You know, if, if we're, it's almost like the oil industry overinvests in producing the commodity. Uh, then, because there's, there's free money, people f have a perception of insatiable demand, and then you get a little bit of a market correction. And do the industries, like oil companies say, we're going to be rewarded for capital discipline down the road and underproduction rather than producing the same amount? And will consumers say, we're okay with less 
in terms of new fresh content. It's a test. I don't know which way it's going to roll. Speaking uh, of a test, the market's opening strong here. And yeah. I, it's notable after we saw the swoon yesterday. We're up 1% now for the week on the S&P 500 on this Friday, and the Nasdaq's higher for the week as well, even though we saw yesterday, which was the worst day, a more than 2% slide since back in March. It's being driven by technology today and consumer discretionary and energy. There was some thought yesterday where the defensives were leaving. Uh-oh, yeah. is, that, is that sort of a, a reemergence of the recession trade or the defensive trade? It's not, right. not really a ton of follow-through on that today. Um, Tesla shares are up a bit after a significant decline yesterday on earnings. However, Netflix, uh, no rebound yet. Yeah. Uh, the stock's not down sharply at all, but, uh, but nonetheless, not a, not a bounce after what was, what, what I don't know where we ended the day, Mike, on that name, but down 8 9%, something yes, like that? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, not surprising to me that Tesla's the one that there's going to be that uh, condition dip buying response. The farther you get away from the actual report of, of numbers of what the business is doing, the better the stock seems to do because it trades on uh, on everything else. So it is interesting. I mean, I think uh, Sarah, the JP Morgan note you mentioned predicted that there would be a, a dip buy instinct in the big NASDAQ stocks yeah. after yesterday. Uh, do want to mention, you know, we're, we're kind of at this point where everyone seems to think the market is probably done enough in the short term. Um, but people still feel and the market still behaves as if they're underexposed to the market. So if I look across the sort of control panel of should I start to worry net yet? Should I start to put on the fastened seatbelt sign? The leadership of the market, as you say, Sarah, is pretty comforting in the sense of cyclical leadership. Um, you've had, obviously, this ability of the market to kind of get overbought and stay that way. That's a good thing. Um, credit, very firm. Uh, sort of working along with the bull case. Yields have calmed down, and the market seems to think it has a handle on this pace of whatever the Fed might do from here. So it doesn't mean everything's great. It means that we, uh, we're in a comfortable spot for the moment. We get another big inflation read next week on Friday with the PCE report, and then we'll get in early August the next CPI report. Overall, and even though there are risks, as I mentioned, with margins, for instance, and disinflation, overall the market has embraced the lower inflation numbers and the fact that the Fed is, is near the end of the road on hiking rates. And that's been the, the primary bull thesis, right, as growth holds up and unemployment does not spike. You know, as far as other movers and what they say about the overall environment, you mentioned CSX and the transports. I was watching Night Swift. This is the big trucking company. Yeah. Obviously a difficult quarter because we know that the trucking industry has been in its own recession and the profit plummeted. Revenue dropped 21%. It was weak. It got a downgrade today. But there were some glimmers of hope. And just in the executive comments from David Jackson, the CEO of Night Swift, he did say that what's been hurting the company lately has been this, this destocking of excess inventories following a sharp buildup in 2022, and that he did say we are in the late innings of an inventory destocking and expect to see a normalization of imports and seasonality in coming months. Mm -hmm. So that could be a good sign, perhaps why the stock is up two and a quarter percent, even though they slashed guidance and had really rough numbers. Didn't he also say that their earlier guidance essentially relied on what their customers were telling them? Yes. And the customers did not have a good handle on exactly what the trends were going to be. Absolutely. Also mentioned the freight recession should be coming to an end. So, again, some signs of hope, much like we saw from the banks and the investment banking world, that they're seeing green shoots and that there's some reason for optimism here. Potentially why the financials had such a had such a good week. And it wasn't just the big banks, it was the regional banks too, well, which we're, were up more than 9%. And we saw week. Comerica leading the S&P gainers. Uh, yeah. Before we started trading, we should take a look at Comerica. We had a couple of other regional banks this morning, but Sarah, to your point, 
they are uh, doing quite well uh, in the marketplace. Second quarter results, uh, Comerica says were strong. The earnings number per share was two dollars and one cent. There you see it not up uh, as much uh, as it had been. Um, record average loans, second highest quarter of non-interest income in history. Of course, the concern has been, given what we saw at SVB and Signature and First Republic, that deposits would be hard to hold on to, and that would uh, essentially mitigate their desire to lend money or even be in a position to do so. So the best performers week to date in the financial space, Zion's up 22%, Key Corp up 17 and Charles Schwab up 15. Those were at the center of the worries about contagion during March because of the mismatch and, of course, you know, the assets and liabilities because of concerns of deposit outflows. When Schwab reported the stabilization in deposits and the good news this week and the stock went up 12 percent, Mike, we talked to Walt Bettinger. Yeah. That, that was a moment. That Absolutely. was a relief moment, I think, for the sector and for the stock. Yeah, and in general, the regionals have uh, returned to deposit growth. And I think the bigger picture is the stocks were so blasted and kind of kept in the penalty box for a period of time at very low valuations, even as the rest of the market started to get comfortable with the soft landing idea. And so they've kind of come together a little bit. The regional bank index as a whole traded down to about 80 percent of book value, and it's rebounded to somewhere close to book value. Now it's a discount to where it is typically traded, but that probably makes some sense. I think that that fits for a lot of them. Like a truest still looks you know, on the cheaper side versus book value. So you have these wrinkles in, the, in between, but I think general comfort at the, the credit path along with deposits not flying out the door, stocks were too low. Yeah. Now though, regional bank index is up 35% off the lows and it has to start to show through it may be more clarity on the longer-term earnings picture, right. and, and, is, and we're not going to have some bad surprises. Which down we road. wondered about many yeah. times in terms of the long-term earnings power of these banks, given what seemed to be a shift in the business model to some extent. Uh, we mentioned Sirius um, XM Radio very briefly at the top of the show. Let's come back to it, because about 2.30 yesterday, this stock had a move that was really unprecedented. You can see it there. Uh, 42% the stock was up, not on anything having to do with fundamentals. Uh, it was essentially a short squeeze. Mike, you've mentioned, of course, the rebalancing of the NASDAQ index, yes. which seemed to have contributed to this. Options activity as well. And then you had a lot of people who were short this stock in relation to what is the tracking stock of its majority owner, Liberty. That stock trades under LSXMA slash K. I know it gets confusing. <laughs> but many the there's always been a differential, and there are those who are short, serious, and long the tracker with the idea that they're going to get closer to parity. Well, in fact, given that move yesterday and the short squeeze uh, that resulted from perhaps this index addition as well, that's never been higher. It's a 61% yeah. discount to the net asset value if you buy that tracker uh, for what they actually own and what it's tracking. Kind of shocking. Uh, we did get one downgrade today from yeah. Evercore, at least one I've seen, where they're just saying, listen, this has nothing to do with fundamentals. We've got to downgrade the stock. This is an extreme example of the effect of this index rebalance, along with a general short squeeze that's been going on. Hedge funds have been on the run on the short leg of their, of their portfolios just because the market's been rolling for a few months. But the fact that it's a low float, that it's in the NASDAQ 100, a very small weighting in the NASDAQ 100. And what's going to happen with this rebalance is they're going to take money out of the biggest holdings and distributed across the rest. And that, therefore, uh, it just was spring-loaded to, to, to kind of get way detached from 
the tracking stuff. But yeah. we've seen other meme stocks move. You don't think it's related to that? This not retail really. frenzy? I think not so. in this particular. You actually have seen the meme index move in the I mean, meme other stocks. Other than the fact so. that it had a large short uh, position and yeah. was, was potentially prey, so to speak. But I don't think it, the, the, the move was not created as a result of the not. Reddit boards or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sirius is a little bit removed from the days of when it used to fly on, yeah. you know. That said, I mean, I always like to point out the $26, $27 billion market value. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a decent-sized company yeah. and, a, and, a, and a, a low stock price. A lot of the things that would make it a meme stock. I mean, but, I think I remember when it became a meme stock when Howard Stern originally went to satellite radio. Right. Am I right about yeah. that? So yeah, that was, That's yeah. a long, long time ago um, at this point. But again, uh, you know, we had Jennifer Witz here, the, uh, the CEO, not long ago. I mean, the fundamentals are fine, but nothing yeah. to justify that move. Um, did want to come back to a story I've been following closely here, of course, which is Microsoft Activision versus the U.S. government in the form of the Federal Trade Commission. You know, earlier this week, we had uh, FTC Chair Lena Khan join us. Uh, you may recall, of course, it's only a week and a half or so ago, two weeks, that uh, the FTC lost an important case trying to stop this deal, get an injunction to stop it. Uh, and I did, uh, and the uh, the news overnight is that they've decided to not pursue this administrative law judge process that seemed to still be moving forward uh, and essentially now seem to be listening to the courts. Uh, I did ask uh, Lena Khan, uh, Chair Khan, about their plan there, having been beaten in court, and what the plan was for the ALJ process. Take a listen to her answer. If we get an adverse decision from a district court, we look very closely at it uh, to determine whether we think there were any um, errors of law or misapplication of law uh, that we think warrant appeal. Um, and so those are the types of assessments that we undertake as we make these decisions. Uh, there are a whole set of instances in which the FTC has not moved forward with an appeal, uh, but in instances where it has, uh, sometimes quite successfully, uh, it's always because we believe that there was um, a, a misapplication of the law or further clarification of the law that needs to be done. Um, and that's usually what uh, drives those decisions. In an interesting, interesting uh, coincidence, I had Bobby Kotick almost directly after. He's the CEO of Activision. We did an interview as well. Uh, and I did ask him, you know, just, uh, well, take a listen to what I asked him and his answer regarding uh, the FTC. She doesn't seem to be backing off in terms of one in that uh, administrative law judge proceeding. Does that surprise you? Um, that, it does surprise me. I think at this point, you know, they've They've seen what the courts have said. They they know the facts. They know the law. It seems like probably prioritizing other things is a is a, is the best opportunity for the FTC. Uh, Kodak got what he'd asked for there, uh, yeah. so they do back off. Of course, the key here continues to be the continued negotiations between Microsoft and the CMA in the UK, trying to get approval for a deal that has now been extended to October 18th in terms of the termination of the agreement between the parties. You know, the other piece of it, just market-wise, which is funny, because at some point, assuming the deal happens, Activision comes out of the S&P 500, just to stay on all the index stuff. Today, J.P. Morgan downgraded Blackstone shares. Now, they're saying fundraising is going to slow down. The stock has run a fair bit at a trillion dollars in AUM. It's hard to keep growing quickly, et cetera. But also that the stock has run up a lot because of this constant speculation that Blackstone will enter the S&P 500. And if you have something like Activision coming out, it would go in there. I don't think that should be an ongoing reason to own the stock. It's already kind of run a bit. Uh, but because Blackstone is a very large market cap that's outside the index, that was the thought. And, then, and uh, Blackstone is down. Uh, almost 2% this morning after having. Yeah, and it didn't respond well to earnings yesterday, which yeah. were essentially in line. That trillion uh, dollar in AUM milestone, though, I mean, for their part, 
as you point out, Mike, uh, J.P. Morgan says um, Blackstone is harder to grow at a trillion. Thanks for that there great you go. insight. <laughs> Hey, I'm just glad they didn't say the law of large numbers because that's not what the law of large numbers means. As you that tell base it, as you effect. remind us. I'm sorry. Do you I, want to remind our viewers no, again? No, I just want to remind them that it's not base effects. No. It's not that it's But it is big. apparently harder to grow once you hit a trillion dollars in AUM. We'll see. I'm sure Blackstone would take issue with that. Yeah. We have a news alert here from Washington, D.C. Let's get back to Eamon Javers with that. Eamon. Sarah, two powerful House Republican committee chairmen, the chairman of the new China committee and the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, have sent a letter this morning to the CEO of Ford Motor Company, James Farley. Uh, they're demanding documents and communications relating to Ford's deal with CATL, the Chinese battery company, to build uh, a factory here in the United States. A couple of uh, interesting points from this letter to Ford. They're demanding a copy of the licensing agreement between Ford and CATL in English and in Chinese. Chinese. They're demanding all documents and communications exchanged between Ford and CATL, uh, referring to the licensing agreement here, and all documents and communications between Ford and the Biden administration about this deal. It's a five-page letter, very skeptical about Ford's promises here in terms of the number of jobs that this deal with the Chinese company will create in the United States. They say, uh, you've suggested that the deal will create at least 2,500 jobs in the United States. However, we have learned that several hundred of the 2,500 jobs will be given to CATL. ATL employees from the PRC, People's Republic of China, who will be in charge of setting up and maintaining equipment, and PRC employees will be at this plant until 2038. They're also raising questions in this letter, guys, about CATL's relationship to the Uyghur forced labor problem uh, in Xinjiang uh, province. Uh, they're suggesting that there was some sort of a backdoor deal here to look as if CATL was divesting from one of the entities related to that problem. But in fact, there was an effort uh, to continue business there. So we'll wait and see what Ford has to say. We'll reach out to them shortly uh, for this comment. But this is an investigation now from the House China Committee and House Ways and Means Committee, two very powerful committees chaired by Republicans up on Capitol Hill, looking into this deal between Ford and CATL. Back over to you guys. All right, Eamon, thank you, Eamon Javers. Before we head to a break, let's give you a quick report on the bond market. Take a look at, of course, how Treasuries are faring this morning. Yields, you ask. Yes, 4.839 on the two-year. Uh, and you can see twos over tens at 3.823. Yeah, that's... Uh, over 100 basis points, right? I got my math right there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's a recessionary signal. Is it? Some might say. Hmm. In the future. Eventually, maybe. <laughs> with, no, with no clock. Eventually, maybe, but right after this, we'll be back. Some new signs indicate travelers are starting to show resistance to higher prices. Seema Modi here with more. We, we've sort of been waiting and monitoring this for a while, Seema. What do you see? Yeah, and it matters because the travel economy has been so strong, so hot for so long. But as Apollo's Tourist and Slog points out this morning, vacation demand in the U.S. is starting to soften. We saw that play out in June, and all signs point to a similar story in July. One of the reasons is consumer preferences are shifting. More Americans wanting to go abroad this summer, specifically Europe, with data from CoStar showing outbound travel now well above 29 
levels. That is putting pressure on U.S. resorts where prices have come down significantly in popular destinations like Maui, Miami, Florida Keys, the Jersey Shore. It's one of the reasons hotel real estate investment trusts with exposure to these luxury resort destinations like Diamond Rock Hospitality, Park Hotels, Bramer have all underperformed the S&P this year. John Bortz, the CEO of Pebblebrook, a hotel REIT, telling me that across his portfolio, average daily resort rates are down 30 percent from 2022 levels, but still up about 70 percent from 2019. So they're holding on to that cushion. Meantime, asset light hotel brands like Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt have seen their stock prices climb by 20 percent or more this year. Stiefel analyst Simon Yarmuk, he expects second quarter earnings to come in line. However, past the second quarter, he warns that a deteriorating macroeconomic backdrop will likely cause the group to underperform. Earnings really kick off in earnest next week. We have Hilton on Wednesday, Will Wyndham as well, and Royal Caribbean on Thursday. But if there is one chart, guys, that the travel industry is watching very closely, it is Marriott, the largest hotel operator, versus Airbnb, the largest home rental operator. Last year, uh, Marriott led by a mile. And this year, you're seeing the exact opposite with Airbnb, guys, up 74% versus Marriott, up 30%. And the big question is, as we continue towards the second half of this year, uh, if that will change at all. Because yes, if you look across vacation rental pricing in the U.S., prices are coming down at a faster pace than hotels. So that's a value indicator toward Airbnb. Yes. I mean, if you're looking for value, absolutely. When you look across inventory, you can find those type of properties um, a lot easier when it comes to Airbnb versus versus hotels. Seema, thank you. Yes. Seema Modi. All right, stocks uh, still up for the session. Uh, S&P is up a little less than 0.2 of 1%. NASDAQ also strong. We're back right after this. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.